Hello and welcome to If I Were the Minister for Education from OnShop.net. Episode 20, Part 1. Replace small schools with hubs. We need to talk about small schools. I don't mean the talk shop that's been going on for nearly 20 years where representative bodies look at the same thing year after year after year. You know those the sorts of things that are called steps in the right direction. Things like the demand that teaching principals should get one day per week for administrative work or things like reverse the cuts to uh, the teacher-pupil ratio in small schools that were imposed during the recession. At this time of the recording of this recording in July 2019, these were the big ideas that were brought forth from the Small Schools Symposium in the last couple of weeks. In other words, nothing new, nothing creative, nothing to make any small school have any optimism for the future. What I want to do is I really want to talk about small schools. I'm giving this subject more than one episode because it's possibly one of the biggest topics I'll be covering in the entire series of these podcast episodes. It is controversial. It's definitely emotive. It is, however, a giant elephant in the room when it comes to the education system because it is a one aspect of our education system that more or less opens up all the big debates the urban-rural divide, the rights of minority faith schools, the concept of parental choice, the question of collegiality between local schools, principal workload, economics, sure, and school viability, and so on. However, all the discussions that have been happening over the last few weeks just aren't actually tackling any of these questions. They might be steps in the right direction, but a direction to what? There's certainly steps in the right direction if the direction one's going in is simply prolonging the death of the small school. I believe these are all smoke screens and if we're really, really serious about saving small schools, we really need to start thinking about ways to make them indispensable. After all, one of the things I'm constantly told is that parents should have a choice as to what school they decide to send their children. And that choice extends to skipping past their local small school on their way to work and enrolling them in a bigger school that may fulfill whatever their needs might be. Now in this episode, I intend to look, take a small look into small schools and examine how we got to the point where we are today from the 19th and 20th century. And in the next part of the episode, we'll move to the 21st century and see if there's any big ideas that could save the small school. I hope by the end to come up with a few ideas and while I intend to look at lots of different aspects surrounding small schools, one idea that I have is that if I were the Minister for Education, I would replace small schools with community hubs. Before I begin this episode, I realise that I'm embarking on a very sensitive question. Most people who read Onshaw.net would know that I'd be someone who would be passionate about secularising the education system. And most people would know that I have huge problems with the way the INTO have been doing their business in the last few years. And most people would know that the word drihid sends me frothing at the mouth in despair. However, 
I know when I write about these issues, teachers tend to ignore me if they don't agree with me or if there's, there's sometimes there's a, a bit of reasonably friendly toing and froing. However, when I asked the following question, are small schools really the heartbeats of small communities? I was taken aback by the level of vitriol where I received. For example, it's that time of the year when I could do without this kind of nonsense. Time to hit the snooze button. That was from a principal in Wexford. Simon, why are you even asking this question? This minister seems to have a better understanding of the role of small schools in a rural community than you seem to have. And um, that's uh, from a former principal in Kilkenny. And then my favourite one of all, uh, I think I need to pause for a couple of seconds before I take a breath and read it. I'm actually going to unfollow this tripe you put up. I know it's not hard to qualify as a teacher the last few years, but you take the biscuit with the last few posts. That's from what I presume is a teacher in uh, County Mayo. Now, I've always been advised when it comes to my own writing that when something really hits you hard, that it makes you angry and defensive. That's generally the thing we need to be looking at. And these responses really interested me. I rarely get personal uh, attacks or comments thrown at me. And really, they, they actually don't bother me at all. So I decided that this tripe was exactly what I needed to explore. So just as an aside, I wanted to double check that the anger actually wasn't related to the fact that when I posted this at the, uh, this, this uh, particular post, it was actually at the very end of the school year when tensions are very high and people are a bit impatient. So I decided I'd take a little pot shot at a different area uh, the, the next day um, about another hot potato topic, which was LGBT rights in schools where their patron body refuses to recognise LGBT relationships. Um, anyway, suffice to say, it had exactly the opposite reaction. So I feel um, it wasn't to do with the end of the year. It was uh, basically... I'd done the disastrous thing of actually asking a question about small schools. Also, before I begin, I need to put in a few precursors. Um, like in previous episodes, I again feel the need to state something that I feel I have to do, even if it seems really strange to do it, if that makes sense. So here is my need to state, I'm not against small schools. It feels a bit weird having to say such a sentence. I mean, honestly, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm against quite a number of things in the world, but small schools isn't really in my radar. Um, I mean, I, I went to a small school uh, as a child and, and, you know, it was a four teacher school and it was it was it was absolutely um, grand. And like, I'd be sad if it ever closed down. However, a little part of me would beg the question, what did it do to save itself? And you know, my school, although it was small, wasn't a rural one. So, I mean, there's dozens of schools within a few kilometres of it. So if it closed, families would just go to another school a couple of kilometres up the road or, or less. But this school had a niche and this niche was its ethos. It's the only Jewish school in Ireland. So I guess when I'm exploring this in the next half of the episode, we'll be touching on what is your local rural school's niche? And I'm, I, I, I'm asking I'm basically asking, why does it deserve to remain open? That's the question. Now, while that question might come across as aggressive or even combative or negative, it's actually, in its intention is exactly the opposite. We have to fight for our survival these days and I don't think small schools are any different. And we'll touch on that later. One final thing before I begin is that I'm going to be doing these episodes with the full knowledge that this is a massive area and I'm only going to be able to scratch the surface. Um, I hope I'll be able to leave people with some starting points to find the big answers uh, for small schools today um, because they have been reducing in size um, in numbers over the last, um, 
as we, as we'll hear in a while the last two centuries um and they, they've only gone in one direction um and every context obviously is different every school is different however the one thing that's the same is that small schools are under threat from closure because and we'll explore a lot of these reasons but mainly economically they're not generally viable and one thing that and this may be the only thing you'll agree with me on in these episodes is that economics aren't the reason to close a school okay schools are much much more than value for money or economic viability and while my arguments may end up being more economically beneficial it is not the focus of my argument so with all those caveats out of the way my plan now is to take that biscuit and run with it as much as possible in as many different ways as i can think of however one of the first questions i'm going to ask is what exactly is a small school well if Irish schools were a relationship status on Facebook, you won't be surprised to hear that it would be complicated. And this has been caused by all sorts of historical stuff between Protestants and Catholics fighting with each other, the belief that every single townsend should have its own school, the belief that parents should have a choice of where to send their child, the fact that every school is a private entity that is competing for enrolments with its neighbours, and successive governments trying to fix these problems without, try without basically offending anyone, which generally means making tiny changes, making things even more complicated. So to be honest, I'd really compare the Irish education system to Christmas decorations in the attic. Every time you look at them, they are completely tangled up. And as you try and try to untangle them, something gets stuck somewhere else. And hours later, while you've pretty much untangled one bit of them, there's loads more to untangle. And you basically just give up and throw the lot of them all over a tree in no particular order and and and, and just switch it on and hope that hope the hope that the uh, person in charge of your house doesn't realize if you didn't untangle it in the first place so <laughs> really is the trouble is uh, i suppose is what it looks like really is it's actually a badly put together system that's kind of um been been thrown about and tangled up and ultimately at the moment it's something I suppose it'll do um, because it's just about it's just kind of working just about enough that it isn't completely falling apart and is still and the lights are still working let's say um right enough christmas analogies in july that's uh, that's far too many uh, in 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 the middle of the summer but anyway what we can do is if you can really try and figure out what what small uh, what schools look like in Ireland the education system you can pretty much loosely divide them into two sections big schools and small schools i suppose would be fair enough and the trouble with small schools is nobody can really decide what a small school is so my first job before i tackle anything is to try and figure out what is a small school for the purposes of my argument um, rather than what is the actual definition of a small school so for me small schools all have to have one thing in common and for me for the purposes of this um episode is what they have to have in common is a teaching principle simple as that however within that context there's three subse subsections there's a very very tiny small school that's the one to three teacher schools in my opinion then there's the medium small schools which is the four to five teacher schools and then there's the big small schools which is the six to seven teacher schools they're all small schools but i believe all of them have to be handled differently uh, generally i think there's a lot we can do with the bigger of the small schools and these schools are likely to be in the center of villages or small towns and they're unlikely to be very very rural unless 
they've become overflow schools from the in the in the outskirts of sounds and we'll explore that um uh, probably in the next um half of the episode very small schools are actually more complicated and more complex because they generally fall into one of two categories the first is they may be completely isolated for example on an island or on the edge of a peninsula or whatever however there are certain areas where there are clusters of very small schools within a 15 to 20 kilometer radius of each other. And most of my focus of my argument in the episodes will be with these types of schools, the ones that aren't that far away from each other. The guys in the middle, the four to five teacher schools, in some ways are my helpers um, for either side of the arguments. And I intend to use a medium sized small school to possibly give the others a bit of a dig out as such. So more on this um, later. It would also be remiss of me not to mention that there's a lot of small schools under Church of Ireland patronage um, and I guess one under Jewish patronage. Um, I'm actually not quite sure how big the uh, two Muslim schools are in, uh, in Ireland. I probably uh, should check that out. But my understanding is they aren't small schools. Um, anyway, um, mainly uh, there are a good load of small schools around the country under Church of Ireland patronage. And that complicates things even uh, more in, ter in terms of my argument but there are ways around this and I will take that into account obviously given my view that there should be no such thing as denominational schools at all my ideal solution would be to simply go with that answer but I'm going to have to make my, my, my life a little harder for myself and allow for the fact that the patronage system is still cemented and isn't really going anywhere for at least another generation or two by which time we could see dozens and dozens of small schools closing due to lack of numbers now, I've briefly touched on this, but other contexts matter, um, such as Gwaeltucht areas, islands and things like that. So we'll have to take those into our context, too. And I'm under no illusion that my proposal is not going to work in some areas due to historical reasons, some of which may very well be valid. Um, for example, there could be situations where two small schools have to remain separate due to some historical battle or a controversial JA thing or something. I, I don't know. But in general, what I'm trying to say is this idea is only going to work if there's buy in and an appetite um, for it. I don't think this is something that should be uh, a stick um, approach. Um, we also need to look at what's wrong with small schools. And that's an important question. If it isn't broken, then why are we trying to fix it? Why don't the government just give all small school principals one day a week for admin uh, work? Why don't the government reverse the cut to the pupil-teacher ratio in small schools and so on? I mean, the biggest problem very small schools have is that they're actually losing numbers. And they're not really at risk of um, closing because of actual government laws and cuts in, the, in this case. Um, you could throw infinite money at small schools and they'd still be in a similar position of losing numbers. Um, and why is this happening? Well, it's because people are moving and working and living closer to urban settings and populations in rural areas are declining. And some might argue that we need to make rural living more attractive, but I think that time has passed. We've lost guard stations, post offices and pubs. They've all shut down one by one over the last number of years. And now a lot of rural villages basically have a few houses, a church and a school. And I might come back to the church here in a bit because I want to examine some of the things they're actually doing, given the significant decline in population there over the last 20 years. Church attendance is way, way lower than it was 20 years ago. Yet the church has adapted. Um, and that's very interesting. One thing we can say, though, is, you know, if, the, if they've adapted and have survived, 
where um that's that's something to look at whereas if we look at the post office the guard station the pub they didn't adapt correctly now they may have tried to adapt i remember the post office trying to do some banking for example but uh i i, I know some innovative pubs may have tried that and they did survive but the ones that didn't ended up closing so we could learn something here from the survivors of rural ireland as schools we also have to try and be unemotive when discussing small schools and that's really hard um rural ireland is taking a bashing i get that and lots of services have been dying over the last number of years and i've mentioned some of those every time something closes it must feel like another punch in the stomach or a nail in the coffin for those that live and work in rural settings however we do have to be realistic is it really moralistic to have a school with 15 pupils and two members of staff when there are schools that don't have enough staff to meet the needs of their pupil of their pupils uh, for example a 400 pupil school where on average 50 of them will have additional needs and perhaps another 50 of them might not speak English and the school receives nothing uh, in the way of um, additional supports. I'm not saying this to bit one against the other for example I would argue ideally both these schools should receive adequate funding and adequate resources however as well as being unemotive we also have to be realistic and basically this goes back to my last point throwing money at small schools isn't actually the solution it's not the solution to the problem we actually need to look at why rural amenities in general are dying and what can be done to stop the decline and doing nothing is really not an option and claiming that small schools are the heartbeats of communities is a very well-oiled cliche but we have to examine really how true it is. We also have to realise that Ireland isn't unique in having rural schools. For example, 30% of Finnish schools are rural. And as we all know, Finland is the king of education. And we need to look at how countries like Finland and other countries who have, uh, and, and it, roughly 20% of uh, schools in Europe are, uh, are rural. And how are they tackling the small school question? However, as I've said above, Irish schools are the Christmas decorations in the attic and they may be more complex than it's than their peers around the world. So the phrase an Irish solution to an Irish problem must actually be considered when we're talking about small schools and simply aping a country like Finland won't work because educational culture in Finland is different to Ireland. Similarly places that, that have been brought up by um, educational researchers such as New Zealand and Canada and all, all the other countries there, often cited by the academics, they also have a different culture, a different educational culture as well, and that has to be taken into account. What I want to do in this episode is I wonder, can we learn from history? And that's really where I'm going to delve into in the first episode, uh, part of this episode around small schools. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring you all the way back before the education system in Ireland was um, even uh, fully formed uh, or fully decided upon uh, uh, back um, as far as 1824, seven years before there was any form of structure to the education system. And in 1824, there were an estimated 11,000 schools in Ireland, 11,000. Today, there's roughly 3,200. So how and why did we go from such a huge number? Now, obviously, this was in the days of hedge schools and there wasn't really a formal education system established in Ireland at that point, at least for another seven or eight years. And people also couldn't travel very far due to the lack of transport. And um, so people would have had to stay local in order to get some form of education. 
Um, there was also uh, the fact that we were um, that hedge skills were, were outlawed. Um, so people had to they had to be small uh, in order to survive. The bigger they got, the more um, I suppose they would be seen, and there could be uh, problems uh, as such for uh, anyone caught um going to one of these hedge schools but anyway so if we fast forward from 1824 i'm just saying in 1824 there was 11,000 schools but if we fast forward 100 years later when ireland became an independent state we can actually look more in depth at some of the statistics then because the department of education has uh on their website they publish statistics every single year um almost every single year of the education system as it stands and this has uh, been going on since uh the um 1920s really for, uh, since the state was founded so i'm going to start off 100 years after the um, 11,000 schools and look at the uh, stats from the department of education in 1927 to 1928 and there's an appendix which states the number of primary schools in ireland over the previous 10 years there it's uh, quite useful because it goes back as far as 1918 which is just uh, almost 100 years after the 11,000 schools and at that point there were a little bit less, 8,002 schools. Now, this declined over 10 years to 5,500, and the steep decline would, uh, is explained here by the fact that in 1921, Ireland became a free state, so Northern Irish schools stopped being counted. So 1921's figures were about 5,700, well, they weren't about, they were 5,746 schools. So about 200 schools closed in less than a decade. Now, it seems that the majority of these schools were amalgamated according to a few simple rules. And the Department of Education outlined how they were going to um, amalgamate schools because there were just far too many for this small um, state um, and a, a small and very young state. And really, there was a lot of schools very close to each other um, that could be amalgamated uh, into bigger schools. There was also the concept of building uh, buildings for these schools. And uh, all this had to be taken into account. And the Department of Education in 1927-1928 came up with three rules um, in order for um, amalgamating schools. Um, so here's uh, what they decided. In the event... Of a vacancy in a school with an average daily attendance of under 30 pupils should there be within a distance of two miles that's 3.2 kilometers with a manager of the same religious denomination so there's lots of variables going in that's catholic or protestant they put in brackets provided that conditions as to accommodation etc were suitable for amalgamation so this was the main rule for amalgamation so what you needed was a school needed to have less than 30 pupils it had to be within a distance of 3.2 kilometers of another school of the same religious de denomination. That was reason to amalgamate. We had number two was separate boys and girls schools adjoining or in close proximity and under the same management on the retirement of the principal of either school. If the daily average attendance of pupils at either or both of the schools was less than 30 in the preceding calendar year. So this is why you might notice now that a lot of rural schools, there's very few single sex rural schools because I suppose this this kind of um, part two of this plan basically was amalgamating boys and girls schools together, which is, I suppose, in some ways was forward thinking for its time. Um, and um, I, if you want to go back to my previous episode on um 
abolishing um single sex schools uh have have a listen to that uh and uh and we can welcome ourselves to the 21st century but even in the early part of the 20th century the government saw the benefits of not having single sex schools that's only my uh, take on it it looks like that was economic reasons less than 30 children in one of the schools or both and then number three here was building grants for new adjoining boys and girls schools are not were not sanctioned unless there was a daily average of attendance of at least 50 pupils in each school. So new uh, new grants wouldn't be given. So I suppose that's um, that's just an addition to number two. But the main thing really was they were basically saying a school that had under 30 pupils was not viable um, particularly if there was another school within i suppose what they considered a walking distance which was two miles or 3.2 kilometers now i guess what i find most interesting about these three rules is there is a, there was a recognition that a school with less than 30 pupils was considered unviable at that time um and I, the other thing that hit me was the two miles and why does that sound familiar now i don't know if it's a coincidence and i've just said two miles is the same as 3.2 kilometers which is the distance today that a family has to live away from a school in order to be eligible for school transport. So in my context, I'm a, a principal of an Educate Together school and the nearest other educated school is, is about 50 kilometres away, maybe maybe a little less. And um, basically, if somebody wants to come to my school that really wants to come to, the, uh, to an Educate Together school, if they live 3.2 kilometres away or more, from my school uh, or the ne the or the next nearest educate together school they are entitled to public transport or a grant towards public transport um to bring to come to a school of the ethos of their choice i'm not sure if that's a coincidence really with the the 2 mile thing um it can't i just ca it can't be a coincidence and i'm sure historians um will be able to delve further into that history but at this time it seems that 3.2 kilometers was the maximum distance someone might be expected to have to travel to school now with car ownership ubiquitous now and a good, very good road network for buses. Surely about 100 years after this rule in 1927, we really need to think about extending these distances. I mean, don't you think? I, I, I think it seems, it does seem a little outlandish uh, to, 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 to use the same um, theories as in the 1920s. But it seems that every year, anyway, moving on, we'll move on anyway. I, I just thought I'd add that little question in. But it seems to me that every year or so, more and more schools amalgamated. Um, uh, when, I'm, when I'm looking through the stats every year, it's, it's actually very, well, I find statistics fairly interesting. But I mean, in 1930, we were down to 5,200 schools. That was uh, down from 5,555. Five, five. Um, by 1940, we were down another 200. And we dipped down below 4,000 primary schools in by 1972. So this was a long, long, long uh, period of amalgamating schools. So it took almost it took over 40 years to reduce the number of school, uh, schools in Ireland from um, over 5,500 to just below 4,000. And it's interesting to note that in 1972, just under half of the schools that existed in Ireland were one or two teacher schools. And more than 75% of all primary schools had, less, had, had basically less than 200 pupils in them. And by the end of the 1970s, the number of schools in Ireland basically remained around what they are today um, nearly 40 years later. So basically by the end, by 1980 roughly, we were stuck at around 3,200. That, that seems to be, the, that seems to be standard really around it, give or take um, 100 or two. So there is a, a bit of a, 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 a very fast history of, of the number of schools that existed. And if we look um, 
if we cross just over to the millennium, uh, just at the start of the 21st century, the statistical uh, reports um, that were uh, produced by the Department of Education, probably with new fandangle technology, they were able to produce graphs about changes to schools. And the most interesting of these um, graphs, for me anyway, was a graph of the number of schools and the number of teachers in each of them from about 1965 onwards. What I'm going to do is I'm just going to describe um, what that graph looks like. So the it goes, it basically gives five years, uh, 1965, 1975, 1985, 1995, and then 2000. So there are the, there are the years. Now in 1965, there were 4,324 schools. 10 years later, 3,439. 10 years later, 3,270, that's 1985. 3,201 in 1995, 3,161 in 2000. So they've been declining and declining ever since. Um, and as well as that, it tells how many teachers are in the schools. If you look at the 1965 to 1966 um, context, then uh, basically um, most of the uh, schools were one or two or three teacher schools. Basically, the vast majority of schools had three or less teachers. And by the millennium, while there were 1,200 fewer schools, the majority of them were four to seven teacher schools. And looking at the statistics over the years, the biggest decline in small schools were those where there were one or two teacher schools. Now, by 2003, schools with teaching principals represented 56% of all primary schools, which is a still a significant number. But with the challenges of the brand new uh, curriculum, the new uh, primary school curriculum, and bigger demands on schools, further work needed to be done. Next week, we'll be continuing this episode and we'll be examining some of the research that's been done on small schools. Uh, this will be part two of our episode. In part three, uh, which will be coming up um, after that, we'll be looking at the small school symposium and a couple of ideas. And then finally, we'll have part four, uh, which will uh, cut down to the, the point of what I would do if I were the Minister for Education. I hope you enjoyed this part of this episode and be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the next part of this episode. So just in time for the midweek slump, although we're on our summer holidays at this time of the recording, so there's probably no slumps at all. You probably don't even know what day of the week it is. But anyway, it will probably get your blood boiling given the topic that it is. Anyway, this podcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify and any other podcasting app by searching for either onshaw.net and if I were the Minister for Education. I'd really appreciate you subscribing to the podcast so each new episode will be available to you immediately after its release. Anyway, please also feel free to review the podcast so others can also find it more easily. Okay, that's it for this week. We'll see you next week. Thanks a million. Bye bye.